the Bee Gees. Spirits having flown. The new album the world has waited for. Unmistakable vibration begins. Hello and welcome back to Words the Bee Gees podcast. I'm Cristiano. I'm Stuart. And that was Barry. (laughs) (laughs) Tragedy. In this first part of our discussion on spirits having flown, we'll be going through the five tracks on side A. And part two will be going on to side two. Before we do that, we thought it'd be quite interesting to go through some emails that we've received over the past few months. Going back, I think even into last year, now that the podcast is two and a half years old, we felt that it was a good time now just to go back and look over some of the correspondence that we've had from everyone who's interacted with us and, and the and the show. We yeah, we've we've loved the correspondence with everyone and so we wanted to share some of the emails that we've had so far. I know I'm, as Barbara Streisand would say, guilty, but I leave all the emails up to Chris and he does a really good job of doing all the replies for me and then he sends me all the reply and all the emails that people have wrote to him. So yeah, it's fantastic. We had an email from Robin Setti who said, I've been listening to your podcast series. Early days so far, just reviewed idea. I must say that I was very much aligned with both your opinions especially with regards to the strength of the last three tracks. I think the only thing I'd have scored much higher was Indian Gin. I can't remember what I scored that one. I'll be honest with you, I Six can't. or seven, I yeah. reckon. I could be wrong. By the way, I'm sure I've read somewhere that Down to Earth had been an inspiration for David Bowie's Space Oddity. I didn't know that. Idea has always been one of my favourite albums. I came to the Bee Gees in 1979 with the White Greatest album. For a while, I'd actually assumed that Main Course was where they'd begun. The joy of digging up the back catalogue over the years after will always live with me. Very good. And I've got a really interesting one from Anne Dugan, when she goes on to talk about kicking the head. I'm very glad I chanced across your podcast. I like how you throw a curveball every once in a while. For one, I thought you would both love Where Is Your Sister? And it's got in brackets, as I do. But then it turned out that neither of you particularly liked it. And also, I was surprised you both dislike Dearest. And everybody knows what I call that. (laughs) More than When Do I. But This Is Your Life takes the care of my least favourite song. And I agree wholeheartedly with Cristiano that Home Again Rivers is a gem. Then she goes on, Speaking of Home Again Rivers, I had a harebrained idea that it forms a cohesive story with Don't Forget Me Ida. In my theory, Home Again Rivers is written from Ida's perspective as she grapples with Rivers' death in combat. Then, from behind the grave, a la one million years, Rivers sings a song to Ida, asking her not to forget him. Here are some other of my ideas. Robin plays the part of Ida, Barry of Rivers. Sweet Billy James is Rivers' son. You're the father of your child, in brackets. River says Ida took away the green grass. Ida says that the grass is getting dry. Both implore each other to come home again. 
Ida is described as a wanderer in both songs. Through the storm you wander, through each covered glen. Search so many towns and roam so many places. I would love to know what you think about this idea. Any excuse for a re-listen? Yeah, Anna's completely right. Any excuse for a re-listen. And I'm so glad that she got in contact with us and also that she shared my love for Home Again Rivers. If anything, the analysis of her email made me love the song even more than I already did. I gave it a 10 out of 10, but it just continues to rise in my estimation. And I remember we sort of picked up on these concept ideas, but I think it flew... Well, it went over my head, didn't it? That didn't take much anyway, but... uh... (laughs) Well, you're talking to somebody that didn't realise I've got to get a message to you was about somebody on death row, so... Coming to this one. (laughs) Complete brain scratcher. From Christine Huber, we had an email regarding Children of the World. Huber said, I spent some quality time with Children of the World. In spite of buying this as soon as it came out in the 70s, it's not a record I listen to very much anymore. Maybe because it is so completely associated with the disco version of the Bee Gees, and we know they are so much more than that. When I think of this album, I think... Lots of falsetto. But after today's listens, I have to admit it's a bit more balanced with regard to the vocals, unlike Spirits Having Flown. Maybe I get that impression because the songs are upbeat and danceable compared to other albums, and it's just all rolled into 1976 music and their image at the time. To me, the album has a lot in common with Still Waters in terms of being R&B driven. That's very true. Yet Stillwaters is more mature and more romantic. Yeah, agree. Definitely agree on that. I hadn't made the connection from Children of the World to Stillwaters, but Stillwaters does have Arif Mardin, and Children of the World comes after Main Course, which was the big Arif Mardin album. So I can see where that connection's coming in. And when we get to Stillwaters in three or four years' time, it'll be good to reflect back on this and, and make those comparisons back to the mid-70s. Yeah, definitely. Had a really good email from Ethan Sesler. He goes on to say, It's been such a treat listening to you and your dad talk about every album in such detail. I first got into the Bee Gees when I was nine. I received a CD player as an award for perfect attendance at school. And the same day, my grandparents surprised us with a trip to the Grand Canyon. Perfect time for a new CD player. The problem was I had no CDs to play. My grandmother, who has since passed, had one she said I could listen to. One night only. Great. Old people music. We never made it to the Grand Canyon, but by the end of the week, I knew the words to staying alive. Massachusetts. Closer than close. And I started a joke. And since that trip, I've probably listened to that CD dozens of times and watched the DVD of the concert eight to ten times. But that CD was just the beginning. I'm ashamed to admit that I used to own a majority of the CDs, But in my youth, I wasn't responsible enough to take care of them. Some broke, some lost, some too scratched to be played. This might be one of my biggest regrets as the CDs are now harder to come by. Yeah, they are, actually. I do, however, own all the studio albums on vinyl from first to high civilization. I do have sizes and everything, but I think it's an unofficial release, along with the comps. An unofficial version of the Melbourne 1971 concert as well. All of Robin's solo work, a couple of Andy's, and I'm currently waiting on a copy of the soundtrack to Hawks, which will complete my collection of Barry's released solo works. Growing up, I've always been somewhat of a musical outcast. Everyone around me was listening to this band or whatever new singer was topping the charts. 
All the while, I was listening to a group that had retired their name the very same year I started listening. And I try as I might, no one wanted to hear Mr. Natural or Live in Eyes. Probably because they can't buy it, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. It was a real bummer. I've come to love more and more of their music through the years, but I always find myself coming back to the brothers' music. And we then had an email quite recently from Christopher Rockall, who says, Gentlemen, a few days ago, I fortuitously stumbled upon Words the Bee Gees podcast, and I needed to reach out to you to pay you a huge compliment. Thank you. Thank you. The presentation and content is truly outstanding, and I'm only halfway through it. I have been a fan of the Brothers Gibb for over 50 years, and my journey with their music started on a holiday with my parents in a little town called Rimini on Italy's Adriatic Riviera back in 1969 when I was 16. At that time, I'd had very little exposure to the popular music of the day. That was about to change as I found my way to a quaint coffee shop akin to a UK milk bar of the 50s and 60s. The establishment had a jukebox and, I guess, a Bee Gees fan, as, on a nightly basis, I was treated to I started a joke, 1st of May, message to you, and don't forget to remember me. I loved them all. I was hooked by this new phenomenon and still am. Within weeks of getting home from Italy, I was the proud owner of a Danset record player. My first purchase was Idea, quickly followed by Horizontal. A few months later, as I sat in my bedroom listening to the Bee Gees, my mum put her head just inside my bedroom door and said, Chris, I am delighted with your choice of music. I guess that sentence is best summed up as words. Once again, many congratulations on your impressive project, and I look forward to further episodes. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Really greatly appreciated. And thank you so much to everyone sending in their emails. And with Spirits Having Flown, we now reach 1979, so we get to the end of the 1970s. This is the last Gib album that was released in the 70s. And getting to this album and looking back, I was thinking, how far have we come in the 10 years from where the Bee Gees were in 69 going into 1970? How much has changed? A lot. Yeah, a lot. (laughs) They're together for a start. (laughs) So just completely different music to what they were doing 10 years before, but also because it's the same band, it's really not that different. Yeah. It's just different arrangements, different cultural zeitgeists, which influence the way in which the record and pop industry has changed so much. And the Bee Gees following that trend and releasing this lavish, beautiful album. Yeah. If you think of what they've done, I always sort of compare it to, say, like, in the mid, mid-60s, mid you had Tamla Motown, you know, with Stevie Wonder, and these, there was hit after hit after hit. Well, I don't think there's been a, a set of songwriters to do as much as that until until the Bee Gees in, in sort of mid to late 70s. That's how big they were. Mm, certainly not since. But regarding these set of songs writing for themselves, there's never been anything bigger, is there? And I think it's also just consistent year after year releasing an album under their own name and albums given away to other artists. I think in the 80s you see a similar thing with artists who have huge seminal albums, i.e. Michael Jackson, where maybe 70% of that album is then released as chart-topping singles, but he would be releasing an album every four or five years. And because they're releasing all those singles, that's what sort of hides the delay in the album releases. Whereas with the Bee Gees, 
77 was the Saturday Night Fever music. 78 was Shadow Dancing and the music that was given away for Sgt. Pepper and for various other releases, Grease. 79 were having Spirits Having Flown. The following year, Barbara Streisand, Jimmy Ruffin, Andy Gibb again. So there's just so much productivity. And we're back 81 with um, Living Eyes. Yeah. Spirits has always been in my top three Bee Gees albums. I almost feel a little bit, no pun intended, guilty. But for this, um, for prepping for this episode, I haven't really given the album too many spins because I feel like I know it so well. I've actually, I've really been spending more time with the demos. Yeah, they're interesting, aren't they? This is one of my favourite albums of theirs as well. I suppose with this one, in hindsight, would you say the falsetto was used too much? Yes, I would. That will be a, a big point of referral throughout this episode of of going back to that argument of whether Barry is a bit just too indulgent and prominent over this whole album where is Morris where is Robin you know they're they're pretty much absent in terms of lead vocals that is yeah I would say that it's overused but we'll get onto that as we go through song by song and I think with this album correct me if I'm wrong but when you get songs on this album they are backed by falsetto whereas Songs like Saturday Night Fever, you don't get all the falsetto in the backing vocals. If we're going back four years to main course, where you have some choruses which are falsetto, but verses more natural voice. Yeah, but then you've got like Boogie Child to um, Love Me. Love Me being Robin, natural yeah. voice. Whereas Spirits Having Flown is pretty much all one tone. But it's a shame in a way that there are quite a lot of different styles of music on this album that because of the falsetto, they makes it a little bit samey. Because when I've been going through this, listening to it in the car, and as you say, mention the demos, you think, well, this doesn't sound like this one. This one doesn't sound like that one. It's all quite varied. It's almost like everything's been coated, the sugar coating of Barry's falsetto, which hides what's beneath. And I agree with you. There's songs on side two, i.e. search, find... I'm satisfied, stop, think again, which are very different, each very different to each other. But the overall effect of listening to this album is that they are all of one piece. But I wouldn't describe this as a, it's not a disco album, is it? In parts, sort of, yeah, but not really. But it just came at that, on the tail end of that. Do you think it comes across as a bit more darker? I think Children of the World is, is lighter. You know, this is a little bit more intense. To think back to when this was released, which was right at the beginning of 1979. So their last full studio album was three years before then. So I wasn't alive at the time, but for you, this must have been a really anticipated release. Oh yeah, it was. Yeah, especially after hearing Too Much Heaven, you know, which was a big chart song. In fact, I had the single from a Christmas present. Then to get the album, as you say, early 79. So did you get this on release date? Yeah. The shop in town, it had, used to put all the sleeves of the albums in the, in the shop window yeah and this was you know this was some, I, I do remember like some promotional big pictures and things so while we're on that what do you think the album sleeve I love it I think it's probably tied with Living Eyes as favourite album design packaging I'm looking at the 2020 vinyl reissue that we have and it's just fantastic to look at it's, it's such a nice lavish packaging with a gatefold it's really, really good. And then you pull out that part then, it's got pictures of the of the studio guys they work with. Yeah, and it's nice. It's always nice to see that. 
if you open up the gatefold, it's like you're literally opening up this album, peeling back the lid, finding out more about it, meeting the people who worked on it, who who made the record possible. This is this is a really really nice, very commercial packaging, like Children of the World. And the front cover image isn't a million miles away from that Children of the World cover. You look at the bottom bit and there's that red bit. Do you think there was something there and they decided, oops, we don't like it. Let's just splash a bit of red or something underneath (laughs) it. I've wondered that as well. Is that lens flare? Was that added in artificially afterwards or was it just... Because it makes the top part pop. Yeah, it's quite an ethereal cover, which goes with the title, Spirits Having Flown. There's something very whimsical very wistful and this cover as well this that particular image it always puts me in mind of um because it was used on the back cover of the ultimate biography that picture so it it always reminds me of reading that book and that cover image the three of them there together for me that's so synonymous with when i think of the bgs it's one of the first pictures that comes to mind yeah and they've used the same logo as well yeah so it's all part of that late 70s bgs branding the only disappointing i'll say about this one is the lack of a lyric sheet when we most need it. We mentioned on the, on the main course podcast that that was the first album to have a lyric sheet. And then I think the next one after that is Living Eyes. We mentioned lyrics on Flowing Rivers that Andy was seemed a bit more direct. I feel this album, the lyrics were becoming a little bit more direct. You know, reaching out, love you inside out. And when you did pick this up and having, I assume, loved Too Much Heaven... Did it disappoint? Did it meet your expectations? I think most people, we was all expecting an album like Saturday Night Fever Part 2. And it isn't, is it? I think Side 1 is. You think Side 1 is? I think Side 1 is one of the strongest single sides of an album that the Bee Gees released. Mm. I know that by what I've put on my notes. It is tremendous. I think maybe Side 2 lets the game down a little bit, but... I go back to Spirits Having Flown far more than I go back to Children of the World, Saturday Night Fever. If I want to listen to the Bee Gees, this will be one of the ones that I'll just dip back into. And I've read also, this is probably one of the most experimental albums where they spent a lot of time on production, working on parts of songs. They originally went to the studios in March 78 and it was released, what, February 79? So they had a good 10, 11 months working on this. Because I also read as well where... um, they were coming on the success of the last two albums plus um, Saturday Night Fever. They were all really, really confident. I think they had that mentality of not can we write a hit, but how long can the hit stay in the charts for? Which is totally different, isn't it? And also on this album, you, you sort of got different tracks that highlight different instruments. The horns, we've got sax, we've got flute. So it was, it was something that I would, I would imagine Bill Shepard would have been proud of. So let's go back to 1979, and this is a year which is one of my favourite years for music. I've got so many albums from 79 which are amongst some of my favourite albums of all time, or favourite albums by those particular artists. But let's start off as we always do, February 1979, the release of Spirits Having Flown. So let's go through the top 10 UK charts of that month. Okay. So at number 10, Gloria Gaynor. I Will Survive. Correct. Number nine, Ian Jury and the Blockheads. He had a really number one for ages. No, can't think. Hit me with your rhythm That's stick. it. Damn. Number eight, Elvis Costello and the Attractions. Oliver's Army. Correct. Number seven, Shadows. I think it was a song from uh, Deer Hunter 
Or is it Don't Cry For Me Argentina? One of them yeah, two. Yeah, don't, don't Cry For Me Argentina. Yeah. Number six, Edwin Starr. No, I don't, can't remember. Contact. Oh, yeah. Eye to eye, contact lenses. <laughs> Number five, Leif Garrett. Oh, he was another teen idol from America, I believe. No, I don't know. That makes sense with the title of the song. It's called I Was Made For Dancing. Yeah, that's it. Number four, Three Degrees. They did a disco record. It shares the same title as a um, Gibbs song from 1980. From Guilty. No, I can't think. Woman in Love. Oh, that's it. Number three. Surprise, surprise, the Bee Gees. Well, tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, ABBA. Take a chance on me. No. Uh, so this is, this is, when is it, sorry? February? Feb 79. Oh, February 79. So this is something like from Voulez-Vous. So is it, um, the winner takes it up? No, it is Chikatita. Correct. And at number one, Blondie. Heart of Glass. Correct. There we are. So yeah, great top ten. Really good stuff there. But going through 79, I've listed a few albums from that year, some of which are my favourite albums by those artists. So... Tony Banks, A Curious Feeling, Hall & Oates, Ecstatic, George Harrison's Self-Titled, which I know it's controversial, but I prefer that to All Things Must Pass. More accessible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah and it's, it's beautiful. Wings, Back to the Egg, Fleetwood Mac, Tusk, Pink Floyd, The Wall, Steve Hackett, Spectral Mornings, Ant Phillips, Sides. Yeah. Really good stuff there. Yeah. I remember buying, as I say, Back to the Egg, I brought Tusk. As it came out, I brought Discovery by ELO. I think then, because I was really getting into Genesis, so I was catching up on all their back catalogue. So I remember sort of buying um, their early early albums. Took me about three years to get into them, but... Uh, paid off. Them. Yeah, paid off in the end. So yeah, like, like you, it, it was a good year. I think 79 and 80 are my two favourite years of the... Certainly of the 20th century for music. It's those two years. They're good years, aren't they? Really good, yeah. But it's weird, isn't it? I remember sort of 69 going into 70, I vaguely remember. And then you listen from 79 to 80. The music sort of... I think 1980 is when electronic music really started. Mm. You got OMD, they started then. Then you got groups like Visage, Ultravox. So it was all, it was all a big change, well, particularly in the UK. I can relate to what was happening in the UK. Then say seventy nine was as well. I would say it was the the year of older groups going disco, you know, Roxy Music, ELO. But there's also a lot of really nice mellow MOR soft rock adult contemporary music, which I really like. Yeah, I like. I tell you what, I, my first picture disc I got in seventy nine was a single, and that was Sad Cafe's "Every Day Hurts." I love that song. It's Beautiful, so good. isn't it? Really good. Yeah, because then the singer went on to work with Mike and Mechanics. Yeah, that is an excellent song. And again, it has one of my 10cc links that it was produced by Eric Stewart. Would you like to present us with your medley of top pickings for 79?
Before we look at the album, I thought we'd just go back to middle of 1978, which is around about August. That's when they decided to release three albums on the Pickwick label, where they decided to go back to all the Australian recordings that we went through before Christmas. And I assume that was all put out then because of the success of Saturday Night Fever. And then also with these coming out as well, we mentioned the way that Shadow Dancing sort of hid the failure of Sgt Pepper. Will you have these again as well? But it's quite interesting that they they released these albums. And I've also read that when 78 as well, a lot of the other albums, early 70s stuff was all out of print. It's interesting, I suppose, that they thought people would like to go back and listen to all the early tracks. Though it would have been in hindsight had there been a decent um, biography where people could have because obviously there was nowhere then apart from a, a book you could get the information from because I think they was put out a bit hapdash they weren't they weren't in chronological order there was one called Monday's Rain second volume was called Take a Hold of That Star and the third volume was called Turn Around Look at Me oh and there was a fourth one sorry called Peace of Mind they sort of were reissues of the um, Rare Precious That's what Beautiful I thought. albums yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me a lot of those yeah So we'll go to March 1978, when work first began on Spirits Having Flown. Recording took place throughout March to May, and then from July through to November of 78 at Criteria Studios in Miami, with the strings being recorded at Sound Mixers Studio in New York. But I don't think the Bee Gees were there in in New York. That was done separately, but then added into the album. The album had early working titles of Spirits and Reaching Out. In the ultimate biography, Barry recalls, it was really an experimentation of us trying to move away from Saturday Night Fever. We were trying to follow up such a mammoth album, but not really knowing how to do that. And we were trying to get back to the mindset we had before Saturday Night Fever. We were looking for a focus, and Spirits Having Flown as a title reflects that. Barry then goes on to say, success creates energy. And we were pretty fortunate that we were pretty much number one in the charts the whole time that we were making Spirits Having Flown. We went to pop heaven for about two years. The personnel on Spirits Having Flown. On keyboards, synthesizer and programming, Blue Weaver. Alan Kendall on guitar. Dennis Bryan on drums. George Terry, guitar. Harold Coat on bass. Joe Lala, percussion. Daniel Ben Zebulon on percussion. Gary Brown, sax, Herbie Mann on flute, the Bonero horns, the Chicago horns on Too Much Heaven and Stop Think Again, with orchestra arranged by Albie Gluten and concert masters Gene Orloff, Bob Basso, engineer Carl Richardson, Dennis Hetzendorfer, John Blanche, and then produced by the Bee Gees, Carl Richardson and Albie Gluten. On Albumism, there is an interview with Spencer Gibb, And he goes on to say, Sonically, it's probably the most perfect record the brothers ever made. That's certainly not to demean anything else that came later or before. 
you had the crew of people, the brothers, Carl and Albie, and the band members, Alan, Blue and Dennis. They had been doing this together for a few years at this point, and they were basically the tightest they'd ever been. In the same article, Carl Richardson reveals, It was more like a direction, a consciousness. The R&B was always there, and that was Barry's right hand. He'd pick up the acoustic guitar and make those rhythms from the get-go. We had drifted away from the discotheque, and it became more of an art form to make records rather than just a groove. It was a conscious decision by all of us in the control room. And I can hear that on the record. The quality, the pristineness, the tightness, it, it all shows. And as you said before, there's different musical elements there, but they're all very well pieced together. And OK, maybe this is a slightly darker album than Children of the World or Saturday Night Fever, but it's just so well produced. And whereas I said on Children of the World that I could really tell that Arif Mardin was absent, here I think the Bee Gees have really perfected the art of producing themselves. Well, I suppose you quite rightly say you've got Arif doing main course and then you've got the first time they produced themselves on Children of the World. Then you've got the non-existent album, but five or six solid tracks. And then you obviously got this. And they've become a tight-knit team, haven't they? Yeah. You know, with the same team working on the two Andy albums as well. With that in mind then, should we go straight into the first track of the album? Let's do it. Let's start with a bit of tragedy. Tragedy was released as the second single in February 1979 with Until on the B-side. Tragedy has got such an iconic intro going into it. And when you hear it, are you taken into Spirits Having Flown or are you transported back to the 1991 tour when they opened the set with this? At the time, it was just a single, but then now I always associate it with um, with that 91 tour. Yeah, because that is a great rendition. Difficult song to start a concert off with. Vocal-wise, to go straight into this, you, you know, you must have, you must, they must have been doing quite a bit of warm-up backstage to kick straight into this. Talking about the recording of Tragedy, Morris says, We had an afternoon off during the filming of Sergeant Pepper, and we wrote Tragedy and Too Much Heaven in about an hour and a half, and then a third track, Shadow Dancing. This is, goes back to uh, the writing Lonely Days and Head You Mend a Broken Heart. It does. Time. Yeah. It's what the brothers were sort of renowned for, wasn't it? First two singles from Andy's album, where they go on to say that they wrote I Just Want to Be Your Everything, and then about an hour or two later is Love is Thicker Than Water. Barry had probably a couple of days off working. Yeah. Went to work with Andy and thought, well, while we're re- we've wrote one song, let's see if we can start on another. And the same thing here with what Morris says about tragedy. I find it amusing that it was during the recording of Sergeant Pepper that they might have been bored on set, so go away into a corner and... Or they foresaw we can foresee what was going to happen to the film. <laughs> yeah, and so think of better things to come. 
But, I mean, three classic songs, Tragedy, Too Much Heaven, Shadow Dancing, and also three very different songs. You get Tragedy, which, as we'll get on to, is rock meets disco, Too Much Heaven is pure ballad, and Shadow Dancing is pop disco. Yeah, soft. And that's the line in my notes where I've written, Tragedy walks the fine line between rock and disco. It's perhaps more associated as a dance number today because of what Steps covered, yeah, which takes away from the rock arrangement, which is so essential to the song. And I know that in some discussions, Tim Roxborough, he said that at its core elements, Tragedy is a rock song. Yeah. With the synth riff and the guitar. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because on Joseph Gibbs songs, he says the so-called disco rhythm is similar to that of the Beatles' Get Back. And the song's halfway status between rock and disco. Completely agree with them. Yeah. Well, I've got to say, what a start to an album. This is the fourth LP on the trot, where I've given it a 10. So obviously, this is a 10. I mean, everything for me just works. It's fantastic. Powerful vocals, guitars, keyboards, and arrangements. Yeah. The thought that comes to mind is firing on all cylinders. Yeah. Everything works. And this must have just graced through to the top of the charts. Unlike songs from Saturday Night Fever, this is, for me, more dramatic. The vocals, again, fantastic. The way the harmonies cut in and weave their way through the instrumentation. And you can see why it was, it was virtually number one all over. Canada, France, Ireland, Italy, New Zealand, Spain, even the UK, number one. And number two in Australia, Austria. And I think I've read, whether it's including the Steps version, but it's the top-selling song by the Bee Gees in the UK. It's interesting as well that even though it comes after Saturday Night Fever, this song, I think people would probably still think that it belongs as a part of that Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, maybe because of the Steps cover, which is a bit more poppy and twee. But it it was certainly the case with me where I always thought of tragedy as being more 78, 77 as part of that collection as opposed to being Spirits Having Flown. But it's only through hearing the Steps version that I could really understand the lyrics. I mean, I don't really know. I can't... I can hum the tune. Would you like me to, to test you again? I, I'll be honest with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be struggling. But um, do you know what the lyrics are about? Because I, there's a review... There's a review in the Australia Ram magazine where they said tragedy was about Barry losing a testicle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll start you off with the first verse and see if you can... Oh, I'm not going to be useless. <laughs> Here I lie... In a lone part of town. In, in a lost and lonely part of town. In... Held in time. In a world of... Something solid ground, is it? No, but I can see where you're coming from. In a world of tears, I slowly drown. I slowly drown, you <laughs> <see>. <laughs> Solid ground. <laughs> going home. 
I just can't make it on my own. I just can't make it all alone. All alone. I really should be holding you, holding you, loving you, loving you. I'm glad you went into that part because that appears at about three and a half minutes. Going back to your talking about this just before we started talking about the song, we get that eight, nine minutes fake studio, which was obviously done months after the record. Well, they inserted this and then, then you get the clips of them live with Andy on stage doing shadow dancing. Not shadow, apologies, doing... Uh, you, um, you should be dancing. You should be too many dancings. Yeah, you should be dancing. Okay, so that, yeah, they had to go back and retrospectively add this in. But it's still fun to watch them. Oh, it's brilliant. Because yeah. you think that, okay, they might be hamming it up for the camera, but this still must be a semblance of what it was like. Yeah, I thought Albie and Carl look a tad embarrassed. And then you get... Uh, um, Robin sort of says when Barry goes to the mic or something and he goes hope it goes okay I think towards the end of it they're walking down and you get this Robin voiceover that you can tell he was reading from a script yeah they're so off the cuff when they talk aren't they that when they actually do read a script oh right okay Barry loosen your shirt maybe <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should just close your eyes and really concentrate on the meter oh, dear. I'll be counting okay I'll be counting yeah I'll, I'll be counting, be counting. <laughs> Not bad, but it sounds awful. <laughs> All right, you can you add a nice it? meter? I think it needs a lot more treble. Okay, look, one more. Okay. So the good thing is about this, you can, you can obviously see, okay, we know it's all sort of staged and everything, but you can see how Barry got the effect of the explosion with cooping his hands around the microphone, making the noise, and then I think that was done three or four times and then all put together to get the effects of an explosion. Yeah, it's very clever. But this goes to what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, where they did spend more time experimenting on this album. It's not a lot of times we get many sound effects, diegetic sound effects in their songs. That explosion kicks us back into the chorus so well. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. So good how it works. And I think in that special, do they then couple that with footage of the touring plane and them arriving on tour? Yeah. And just that, that explosion, that kickstart of the tour if this was being done live now you would have like fireworks on stage kind of like live and let die you know everything just goes up like you mentioned about the best thing about sergeant pepper was actually seeing them in 77 stroke 78 it's great to see this and i did read a few years ago about that there was talk of a deluxe edition of this hmm. and 2019 40, yeah. 40 years yeah and we get a, a deluxe of this we get 79 tour yeah so did you watch that TV special when it Don't broadcast? Remember. But you did have the Paul Gambaccini radio show, which yeah, was for Yeah, which this. was obviously promoting. Fully recently, I showed you the, the cassette I had that I made. And it's a pain that, as I say, that I just taped all the songs so I didn't know them. But in hindsight, I should have taped just the interview part, thinking, oh, I'm going to do a podcast in 40 years' time. <laughs> so I'm wondering with the, with the version of Steps, whether, whether that encouraged a lot of new listeners. Despite what we think about their cover of the song, that's the best thing. It was very thing. 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, it, and, and it's the best thing that a cover can do is to make you reappreciate the original. And if that's what it did for audiences, if it introduced them to the Bee Gees, then fantastic. And likewise, we'll talk about the demos. So there's the collection of demos for Spirits Having Flown. 
And I think using the word demos is a bit misleading. I would say rough mixes, yeah, not demos. Because for me, a demo is sitting down maybe just at the piano or with a guitar and running through a song for the first yeah. one to five takes. Whereas what we hear with these spirits having flown, quote unquote, demos, is near enough the final product, maybe in a different key. I put them in as equivalent to the demos, the ones that we have of Barry doing the cover albums. Guilty. Because with those, I think the backing track is pretty much there. It's just guide vocal. Exactly, the guide vocal. And Tragedy, I think, is very close to the final product. There's very little difference. And that's because the song and the arrangement was probably all there from the first go. Yeah. I don't think they had to really develop much with this song the riff, the guitar, the synths, the lyrics, it all speaks for itself and, and a good arrangement and a good song. As Graham Goldman has said many times, if you've got the lyrics and the song, the arrangement takes care of itself. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that that's what happened here. Definitely agree with you. Yeah, I went through all the demos, like like you said, and I think I said to you, didn't I, at the time, that, hmm, are these demos or are they, are they, as you say... Bootlegs that sound like demos. Yeah, yeah somebody's, somebody's piddled around with them to make them sound like... Um, but I would like to see a very, very early take of this. Did it start on guitar? Did they have that synth guitar riff from the beginning? No, that's true. How would a, uh, a more acoustic version of this sound? Would be fascinating to hear. Because on Keppel Road, we get them doing Just In Case. Is that a, let's do a similar thing to the fake? I don't think so. I think that's real. You think that's real? I think that is really just a camera pointing at them, capturing that moment in the studio, because... They're really working out that song. And that's so fun to see them do such an obscure B-side three years before it ever came out. They're the things I love. You know, being a fly on the wall, just watching them. It's watching the the fantastic sort of creative... Juices. Yeah, juices and and the progression that they... How they find... How they pluck these things. That's where the brotherly thing comes in. But if anybody wants to listen to a classic version of Tragedy, I'm not referring to the Steps version, but in 1981, there was a single come out and it was by Star Trek's Disco. And it was quite popular in 81 for, I think they were from Holland and they called like Stars on 45. So they did one on the Beatles where they had a lot of Beatles songs that they, they wrote, that they recorded themselves, but it was all put to like a disco backing. So you, I think there was a Beatles, they did one, uh, one from songs from the 60s. But there's this one, as I say, by Star Trek's Disco. And they do a medley. So if anybody wants to hear sort of disco versions of Massachusetts, Saved by the Bell, New York Mining Disaster, along with Tragedy, give it a listen and uh, see what you think. I definitely need to hear a disco version of Saved by the Bell. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely play them.
charts. Tragedy achieved number one, US, number one, UK, and number two for Germany. So regarding reviews, in Billboard, Tragedy was the lead review in its February the 3rd top single picks. It goes on to say, the Bee Gees do it again with this charging pop disco tune similar to intensity to staying alive. Vocal and instrumental hooks abound while the painted Bee Gees falsettos and harmonies are as graceful as ever. Record World, again, lead its page singles review with this song which describes it as a sizzling, up-tempo follow-up to Too Much Heaven with some classic progressions, high harmonies and an undercurrent of synthesizers. Reflecting on tragedy, Robin Gibb says, I've always loved singles, and to me, this represents the classic single. High urgency, one word statement, chorus line, with an equally contagious verse. I love this record. So I've gone with with a 10. I assume you are not that far out either. I've gone with an 8. Oh, okay. Tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I love this song. I think it sits... I sound like a bit like a stuck record here, but things like You Should Be Dancing and Jive Talking, where I've heard it too much. Objectively, 10 out of 10, but for me, an 8. But that won't be the same for the next song, Too Much Heaven. So all of the songs on this album are BRM. So it's it's a group effort, which is really nice to see. And Too Much Heaven was released as a single in November 1978 with Rest Your Love On Me as the B-side. What a beautiful single. Really good. Yeah, really nice single, actually. Was that on Constant Rotation Christmas 78? Oh, yeah, both. And this goes back to songs um, like Sweetheart. I'm talking now, sorry, about Rest Your Love. It was nice to get this... Country ballad. Country ballad. But going back to Too Much Heaven, this is a group that just keep on giving, isn't it? Yeah. It's a melody to die for. I think it, it's goosebump moment with those lush layered harmonies. It just works so well. I think we could take what we said about Fanny Be Tender and Baby As You Turn Away and How Deep Is Your Love and just copy and paste our thoughts here because, like you said, I've got and, exactly and the Sherrard. same thoughts. And Sherrard. Yeah, oh, and Sherrard. Don't forget Sherrard. <laughs> it seems like Too Much Heaven took quite a bit of work to get to the final product. According to Joseph Brennan's Gibb songs, Too Much Heaven has 27 Barry Gibb vocal tracks. But it works so well, it's such a smooth, oh, it's beautiful. smooth, beautiful sound that they managed to get from that. And if it took 27 vocal tracks, then it's understandable. And it's interesting that they started the, the lead into this album with a ballad, the same as How Deep Is Your Love. But in terms of the album sequencing... If this was 74, they would have started Ah. it with Too Much Heaven. Ah, that's true. As opposed to the rocker of tragedy. This is, at this moment of time, and it has been for quite a while, my favourite Bee Gees song of all time. Like you, I've probably got this in in the top three or four songs. And it's also supposed to be one of Robin's favourite Bee Gees songs. 
I think this in How Deep Is Your Love, it's it's like two sides of a coin. Which one is your favourite? It's it's so difficult to pick. Yeah. As you know, I usually put everything that we're going, all the songs we're going to record, I tend to put onto a CD and put it into the car and listen to it. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I went to um, I went to a work colleague's funeral. And afterwards, on the way home, the track came on. And the lyrics really, you know, it hit me then. You know, I, so I must admit, I did, did sort of shed a tear. You know, it's love is such a beautiful thing. You make my world a summer day. And you're, you're just a dream to fade away. I can see a new, a new tomorrow. Everything we are will never die. And it's and it's something like that. It takes you to appreciate the lyrics and mm, things. Yeah. In as much as it's a follow-up or a sister song to How Deep Is Your Love, I do think that quite a lot of side one of Spirits Having Flown is a precursor for Living Eyes. And I think that tragedy puts me in mind of He's a Liar. And I can hear quite a lot of the ballads from Living Eyes in Too Much Heaven. Yeah. But this is a song that is everything that I want and expect from the Bee Gees. Songs like this and How Deep Is Your Love, that started me, I think, on my quest to go find all the Bee Gees albums because I was searching for songs like this. Yeah. There's got to be something, isn't you? Inside, you think, why do I want to do this? Not only is it to collect all their stuff, but you, you're you trying to find, oh, I haven't seen, I never heard that album Trafalgar. I haven't heard this album Life in a Tin Can. I wonder if it's got an, a song like... And you're looking for the song, the songs that are like that, because you want to then be able to, to see the trail of where things like Greatest Man in the World from Trafalgar was might have been the beginning, which then formed itself into I Can Bring Love, which then formed itself into Charade, which then goes into How Deep Is Your Love, which then goes back into Too Much Heaven. So it's like you're going to the, back to the beginning of that trail. Yeah, exactly. To see where these things come from. And that that's, that's the thing, isn't it? You're just searching for that missing song. You're searching for it wow, that should have been put out. Like when we talked about Twinkie. Yeah. You know, it was such a brilliant surprise to hear something. And you probably think slightly different of it because you know it's never been heard. Had it been on a regular album, you probably wouldn't think so much of it. But because it, it's something come out of the blue, you, then you sort of listen to it slightly differently. Too Much Heaven features a key change at the end as we go into the final chorus and the refrain. And going through the Bee Gees discography, Spirits Having Flown stands out as an album because there's quite a few songs on this album where they employ a key change for the last chorus. But they don't really use that trick in many other songs or many other albums in their career. It just seems to be on this album they use that quite often. And on Too Much Heaven, it just makes that final chorus all the more impactful And it gives so much power to it. Like Robin's protagonist in Love Me, it adds so much emphasis to the emotion of the chorus. And we really believe that heaven is a place that nobody gets enough of anymore. 
And I've always thought of Too Much Heaven, Nobody Gets Too Much Heaven No More as kind of the brothers commenting on the music industry. 1979, new wave, punk. Ballads weren't probably the most popular thing at the time. And so I think it was, it almost sounds like the Bee Gees, no pun intended, reaching out to audiences to want to get these ballads back in the market and and to get people back onto love songs. And I think Too Much Heaven just achieves that so beautifully. And with the lyrics detailing the struggle to find true love, I think that the Bee Gees just, they know when to release songs. Definitely 77 to 79, they just know what singles to release and when to release them. And and they just released this at, at that right time. Yeah. Well, I read an article quite recently where Barry was talking about influences and then he goes on to say and he's talking about 2016 when we lost quite a few famous people and he says then that he felt he could he really liked Prince and like the music then he mentions David Bowie and says well I never really understood his music but I appreciate his art yeah form so you can sort of see by that which way Barry tended to lean towards and if we're talking about 2016 his final album black star which i've listened to and it is i've not listened to that see i really like elbow and elbow stem a lot from radiohead which i can take or leave but i can hear a lot of radiohead and then also some sort of early elbow influences in black star and there's some really really deep stuff there listen to a song like lazarus and there's a lot to it but the final track on that album is one of my favorite songs of all time it's called i can't give everything away and there's so much poignancy because it's Bowie's last song. And it's so sad and so poignant. And it goes back to what you were saying about hearing too much heaven on the way back from a funeral. That this music, when it just hits certain points and it hits you at certain points in your life, can really yeah, really make you feel things. No, I think so. I mean, I, I, I'll have to go and listen to that then. Because I've, I've I mean, I tend to stick to his earlier albums. But even those, you have to sort of really yeah listen to and i can understand why he's he was so popular he kept reinventing himself from glam he become like philly soul to then working with eno on sort of quite landscape type abstract music and then he goes to work then with chic with let's dance and that's really where i go up to on david bow i haven't really ventured much Apart from a couple of singles, he did one with the Pet Shop Boys, which was good. So, yeah, I'll give that one a, a spin. liner notes of the Tales of the Brothers Gibb box set, Robin Gibb says of Too Much Heaven, The starving children of the world was the genesis of this song. 1979, early in the evolution of music charity efforts, we donated this one to UNICEF and its worldwide work, which we felt strongly about. And it was a huge hit too. 
Yes, because that was on January 1979. There was this programme, and that was shown in the UK. So you had the Bee Gees, I think they lip-synced Too Much Heaven. Then you've got, I think, Olivia Newton-John, Abba and Andy are all on it. Going back to the um, article I mentioned earlier with the interview with Spencer, he says, if you listen to Too Much Heaven, as an arrangement, especially from a producer's perspective, what is unique is that because you have the orchestra underneath and the minimal other instrumentation, the vocals might as well be a choir with the orchestra. It's so lush and textured together. He goes on to say, I had the opportunity to be in the studio with them many, many times and the way they knew each other was just effing creepy. My dad would be doing a vocal take and Barry would be sitting on the, at the console and what I'd hear was something magical and Barry was like, ah, nah, you're flat. My dad would say, okay, and then he'd sing again and it would be, just be slightly more perfect. Not much to my ear, but then Barry would say, okay, perfect, you've got it. And that was just a part of being brothers and growing up together. My dad and Barry would often sing together and it would sound like one voice. So going back to this, you mentioned a few minutes ago, the horns are on this track. And this was from the band Chicago. And they had huge hits with If You Leave Me Now. In the 80s, they had Hard To Say I'm Sorry, Hard Habit To Break. And then in return, the Bee Gees sang backing vocals on a track called Little Miss Love from their 78 album. What do you make of the demo of Too Much Heaven? Well, like you, I find this quite similar to the way you described tragedy. I think we get the counting, do we, on this? Is There's this... the counting. That's the one thing. The second point that I picked up on is the percussion. It's more metronomic and it might be in a slightly different key. But other than that, it's, it's near enough the final product. Yeah. And it goes back to what I said with tragedy and that I think that with an arrangement and lyrics that are just so good, everything else took care of itself. And even though it took Barry 27 vocal tracks, that was just <laughs> adding layers on top of the cake. The basis was already there. Both of us, Chris, like reading the Steve Hoffman Forum, don't we? And there's an article from F. Suttle where he goes on to say, I had the very good fortune recently to listen to a few minutes of an uncirculated early take of Too Much Heaven, dating from the spring of 1978. And this was during the early stages of Spirits Haven't Flown recording sessions. This version features Barry leading the basic band, that's bass, drums, guitar and keyboards, and the backing track sounds very similar to the officially released version. What makes this early version so special is the vocal, which is Barry entirely solo with zero overdubs, and also the lack of orchestration and horns. He goes on to say, I was never a big fan of the song due to the overproduction, and I must say this early take is a revelation. It sounds so much better with the layers peeled back 
very reminiscent of the naked version of The Long and Winding Road after the Phil Spector choirs and orchestra had been removed. And also, like with what I said about tragedy, in that I would like to have heard the very first takes of that if it was just them and guitars, etc. I'd love to hear that with Too Much Heaven. And my favourite live performance of Too Much Heaven is from Pebble Mill in 1993. And there's a beautiful version of them. It's on a chat show, just them three and guitars. It's incredible. And my life, I can see me on forever. Everything we are will never die. Love is such a beautiful thing. Oh, you make my world a summer day. Are you just a dream? To fade away Nobody gets too much heaven no more It's much harder to come back I'm waiting Too Much Heaven has my favourite promotional music video accompanying it. Have you seen this? Uh, not that I recall. What, which, what makes it so different for you then? It's the three of them around the microphone and they're surrounded by like a circle of orchestra. Oh, okay. And the camera is just revolving around them. It's like the footage that we had of them doing Oh Darling from Sgt. Pepper. It's just them in the studio and it's got this really great smoky vibe to it. okay. And for me, if aliens were to land on Earth and they asked me to show them the Bee Gees, something that defined the Bee Gees, I would show them this promotional video in terms of the song that they're singing, which is, depending on the day, my favourite Bee Gees song of all time. And just this video, which I think just perfectly encapsulates the brothers and who they are and what they do so well. It's beautiful. I'll have to go and look on YouTube because I don't think I've seen it, to be honest with you. Nobody gets too much heaven now. It's much harder to die. I'm waiting in line. I did see a vocal only of Too Much Heaven. And that really does highlight the, the harmonies and the vocals on this song. It's incredible. Chris, I thought what we'd do means this is the 45th year since the release of Too Much Heaven in November 78, I thought I'd look back and just have a look what was released in November of the years. And it's quite interesting, actually. If you look at the, the very first Bee Gees album, Bee Gees Sing and Play, is it 14 Barry Gibb songs? That was released in November 65. Then you've got a big hit, Massachusetts, which was 67. The comeback single, Lonely Days, that was November 70. You've got one of Andy's first singles in Australia, Words and Music. And then you had the big year in, in November 77. You've got the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, Tavares' More Than a Woman, and Samantha sang Emotion. And then you get you get these small things, I think, Don't Want to Live Inside Myself, which obviously didn't quite work for the Christmas market then. <laughs> Alive, the album Trafalgar, and the album Two Years On. Christmassy oh, albums. Christmassy albums, yeah. <laughs> And then there was also a couple of compilations. There was the box set, Towers from the Brothers Gibb. That was November 90. 
Good Christmas present. Yeah, really good one. And then to time with that, they brought out the very best of the Bee Gees in 90. For Whom the Bell Tolls, Still Waters Run Deep. That's probably the last one in 97. Too Much Heaven achieved number one in the US, number three in the UK, and number 10 in Germany. Right, regarding reviews on this one, Cashbox goes on to say, although the Bee Gees' new studio album is not expected until perhaps early spring of 79, RSO is releasing the first single to heighten the profile of the group pending an upcoming TV special. Gentle and silky, with a famous falsetto is rising upwards. This track has an appealing repose. Strings sweeten. Look for this record at the top of the pop lists. Billboard goes on to say, A taste of the new BG studio album. This ballad features the Gibbs' inimitable vocal style as the falsetto and harmonies play off a sweeping arrangement. Record World, the first single from an LP slated for early 79, is a flowing ballad with the trademark falsettos and a light touch, an out-of-the-box smash. Now, going through the internet as well, I've come across this. So I thought I'd ask you this. It goes on to say the line which recorded the printed lyrics says, Loving's such a beautiful thing. Now, the writer goes on to say, I don't know if he sings... Not loving such a beautiful thing. He sings, love is such a beautiful thing. Or love ain't such a beautiful thing. Eddie, you always... I've heard it as love is. But I can also hear loving. I've never heard love ain't. Love ain't such... I don't know. But the lyrics, as he says, says, loving's, ing such a beautiful thing. Which also works. Mm. Not quite misheard lyrics, but there's a play on words there, isn't there? And can I ask you about this song, The Ultimate Question? Do you choose How Deep Is Your Love or Too Much Heaven? I'm going to go with ever so slightly How Deep Is Your Love. And I go with this one, Too Much Heaven. Okay. You listen to one and it could be one, listen to the other one, it could be the other. But as we're taught now, slightly How Deep Is Your Love. I think that Too Much Heaven has more vocal prowess, but I adore the arrangement of How Deep Is Your Love. That opening of How Deep Is Your Love, I I don't think has ever Mm. been topped. With How Deep Is Your Love, I I think a lot of that has gone down to Blue Weaver. Very underrated Blue Weaver. And I think you'll find when we come to the podcast that his songwriting comes to the fore a little bit when we come to the Jimmy album. Because he's involved in that a lot. Yeah, he's a a great part of the Bee Gees canon in this part of their career. He's so vital to arrangement, songwriting, production... As you said in our episode on Shadow Dancing, it's that tight-knit closeness with Carl Richardson, Albie Gluten and Blue Weaver, plus Barry, Robin and Morris and on occasion Andy, mm. that just forms this magic. As you say, a close-knit family that, that knew each other inside out, I believe. So they knew what each other was going to do next. They knew... Inside and out. <laughs> which will tie us nicely into the next song. <laughs> yeah, you're right. They knew how to make pure gold. So did Ringo. So, oh yeah, badly. <laughs> It will come as no surprise, I'm sure, but too much heaven, 10 out of 10. Yeah, and I'm straight in with a 10 as well. 
we then come on to the third song on this album, Love You Inside Out. Love You Inside Out was released as the third single in April 1979 with I'm Satisfied on the B-side. And I'm definitely satisfied with this single. Yes. (laughs) Now, with this one, Love You Inside Out, there was a compilation and it was released 2004 and it was called Number One and it included Man in the Middle at the end as a tribute to Morris. And it also included Love You Inside Out. And I was looking at reviews of this Number One compilation and... One of the people commented and said that Love You Inside Out shouldn't really have been on there because it was never really a number one. And I've always, that's always stuck with me because I love this song completely and I, and I think it does deserve to be there. Well, it was number one in the US. Whether they were thinking maybe UK? Yeah, it must have been because it was definitely number one. In, in fact, it was their sixth number one in a row. It matched the Beatles of their run, except the advantage of the Bee Gees is all theirs were composed by the Bee Gees. Whereas the Beatles was all composed of them apart from Twist and Shout. I really like this. But for me, it's I was surprised it got to number one. For me, it's probably the weakest of the six number ones. Yeah, I would agree with that. It doesn't compare with those other songs, but I love it just on its own. It's quite funky. Well, it's very catchy and it's got a what well, it's got a stellar production, hasn't it? I think the chorus, the hook of the chorus is irresistible and infectious. And this goes back as well to what I mentioned earlier about this album and its lyrics. You know, you've got lyrics like, you are the reason for my laughter and my sorrow. Blow out the candle, I will burn again tomorrow. No man on earth can stand between my love and I. Quite powerful stuff, isn't it? That is an incredible mid-late. And it comes just at the right moment in the song. It's after Barry's you can't change the way I feel inside and he holds on the word inside and then it goes into that middle eight and then that adds so much more power to then the final chorus when he comes back in with love you inside out it's fantastic do you think that falsetto is it do you think it's Barry or Robin yeah I've wondered that to be honest but I think it would be more Barry and Robin yeah and I'll tell you what I did notice on this bridge this actually the bridge is faster than the other part of the song it's so full of energy, this song. Yeah. I'm not surprised. You can sort of hear the, the vocals put on like a... So anxiousness when they sing that part. It's very good. And the instrumental part of Don't Try to Tell Me It's All Over, it's very similar to the Melvin Bragg theme from the South Bank show, which in turn was on an LP by Julian Lloyd Webber. Now, you can excuse my pronunciation. And that was based on Paganini's 24 Caprice. Mm-hmm. 
listening to the demo of Love You Inside and Out, the biggest difference from what I can hear is that it doesn't have all of the orchestral flourishes, such as the run-up in the chorus between the words love you, da-da-da-da-da-da, inside and out. That run-up isn't there in this demo. And it goes back to what you said at the beginning, that this album masqueraded within all of the falsetto is a lot of different styles, tempos and moods. When I came to do some research into the 79 tour for this episode, I just assumed that they played this live. I don't know why, but I felt like I'd seen them in some videotapes playing this live, but I I don't think they ever did. And it shocked me. And I think it's a shame because of all the songs on this album, it, it would have transposed so well to a live performance. Yeah. What songs have they done? They've done Tragedy. They've done Too Much Heaven. Barry did... I'm fairly certain he did, he did Spirits in he 2014. Did, he, did, he did Spirits. Yeah. Definitely. It got to number one in America. UK got to 13 which was um, a bit of a drop. Belgium, 22. France, 39. Italy, 17. And New Zealand, 35. So I know, as I say, it got number one in the US, but I'm wondering, whether, in hindsight, whether it was the right one for the third single. In the strength of the song, I, I was surprised it reached number one in America. And then we get another obscure quote from Robin Gibb on Tao's Brother Gibbs, where he goes, What is this? You might say... Is this the life of a pair of underpants or the memoirs of a dodgy doctor? Close. It was in fact our third number one of Spirits album. I've got Cashbox, leads its feature picks and reviews Love You Inside Out. The Beaches have turned radio inside out with their music. Wild Tragedy is still holding on to the top 10 of the pop charts. RSO is coming out with a third single from the smash Spirits Haven't Flown LP. This finely arranged and performed love song will become an immediate ad for Top 40 and various formats. Record World has Love You Inside Out as the lead review on its page one singles column. The third single from the number one album has light discover tones and their high vocal harmonies are featured once again, a stunner. So I've dipped a bit on scores with this one. I'm going with an eight. Whereas I'm going with a nine. So how do you think that the first three songs on Spirits compares to, say, the first three on Main Course? Now, that is a difficult one, isn't it? Because you, you've got such iconic Nights on Broadway, Jive Talking and Wind of Change. And this one, How Deep Is Your Love? I think in my ideal world, I'd have Tragedy, Too Much Heaven and probably Nights on Broadway. So with that then, shall we reach out for the fourth track?
Well, a bit like um, Too Much Heaven, this is another beautiful, stunning, blue-eyed soul ballad. Another one that's seamlessly plucked out of the thin air. But this one, I've got to say, I do wonder how it would sound in their natural voices. Because I think this one is so intrinsically linked to the falsetto, I almost couldn't imagine it any other way. Well, no, I, I, I'm saying that, but like you, I don't think I would want it any other way now. I'm so used to it. I think that this does sound like a precursor to his Guilty material. Yes. And then it puts me in mind of all the demos of of that album where we're getting Barry in falsetto to emulate the female voice. Well, I think the falsetto on this, it sort of makes the song more powerful, particularly the ad-libs and the part at the end. But if I was going to describe this, I would say they're going to the soulful sort of... I know you're not very keen on them, is the stylistics. And it's You Make Me Feel Brand New. Yeah. But yeah, it's a nice start with the vocals. The vocals sort of come floating in. Even the first line of the lyrics, watching every day go by. That's it. You already know just from that one line what kind of song this is going to be. And it's backed with some gorgeous synths. And then you've got, then it's got acoustic guitar as well. I think this is one of the BG songs which arguably it starts to enter into the territory of saccharin. And I'm only saying that because of the falsetto. I think if it was natural voice, it would just change the whole mood of the song. I mean, those ad-libs where it goes into them really high ranges. I don't think it goes or it pushes the song so high as, as at the end of Staying Alive, but it's, it's not far off. So, I mean, how do you think about this sort of four tracks in four falsettos? Is it a problem with you or, or not? I spotted it from the first time I listened to this album. And I remember mentioning it to you at the time that it did just feel like Barry Solo. Yes. Yes, I remember you saying. Overall, it's not to the detriment of the music. It's just that we would like to have more variety on there. But I think with songs like this, they just demand to have Barry on the lead and to have a falsetto. There's not much to distinguish the demo of reaching out to the final version, aside from the counting, the lo-fi quality, and I think the ad-libs at the end. Slightly clear, aren't they? Do you think because they're not surrounded by production? No, you can really, you're right, you can really sonically picture, it's quite an oxymoron, but to say that you can sonically picture Barry's voice gliding over his own backing vocals. Yeah. It's quite nice to hear, it's really nice actually to, to hear that, and as you say, that's... Ironically, that's brought forwards in the demo as opposed to the other way around. Would you say this is probably the peak of his vocals? I'm saving my thoughts on this, but my favourite... Barry Falsetto comes much later on in their career, but I think in terms of consistency, because he'd worked his falsetto so much, 77, 78, 79, it, he really was at the top of his game. So you said about how after hearing Too Much Heaven, that inspired you to go backwards in the Bee Gees catalogue and try and search for those other songs of the same ilk. You probably quite like reaching out. Yeah, and I the, did. And yeah. that it was kind of, again, of that vein. I still do, and prefer it to love you inside out 
I've gone down to an eight for this one. Uh, well, I've gone up. I've gone up to a nine again. So two tens, eight, and a nine. So it's not bad for four tracks on an album, is it's it? Not bad at all. And, and things definitely get top well, tier with the next song. Definitely. Well, this was released in parts of the world as a single and it was released in December 79 so a good sort of nine ten months after the album was released which is typical of the 70s while everything's still good let's bring out another album and with the Bee Gees it was the greatest hits and it was a double so I, th- I think this was put out there to re- as a promotional single a promotion for the greatest hit should I say and it was backed with Wind of Change and it got to number 16 in the UK again this is another one of my top BG songs this takes me all the way back to Kilbourne Towers yeah that sort of song it is. and I think this is like Kilbourne Towers was that 68 and they were in 78 so this is you can say we, we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast how they changed from the se- early 70s to the late 70s well here you, you can hear Barry singing in 78 and 68 and they're not too dissimilar no you give Kilbourne Towers a, a 1978 production and you're not going to be that far out. I am a bird, watch me go drifting by. With my feathers of power, I laugh as the hours go slowly by. That could mean everything. same sentiments as you there's only so many ways I can say that I love it but I, I I do love it so much and it's one of the ones where I think when I first heard the album it kind of passed me by it flew by no pun intended yeah and it was just probably there as like a seven eight out of ten now it's risen right up to a ten I've gone with a ten Chris I mean what I like as well on this one you get his natural voice on the verses yeah and that for me automatically makes it an album highlight but it fits so well it does yeah it could be the end of side one. It could have been the end of side two. It's perfection. And I think looking on the internet, I haven't really seen a bad review of this this song. I think this is one that has been like a fine wine. has got better with age. People oh, have, I think so. I've have grown to rediscover it. And it doesn't appear in all the best of compilations, not many at all. But it's, it's just one of those ones that's like, you discover their albums and their lesser known works so that you can discover beauties such as this. It's got sort of a bossa nova beat. Bossa nova, it's got the whimsy of Kilburn Towers, the pastoral qualities with the flute. Oh, that's it, pastoral, that's a good one, yeah. This was originally titled Passing Thought, and in the ultimate biography, Barry recalls, It started in the studio. It wasn't written at home. We sat down with a guitar and just strummed, and we found different chords on the guitar that we don't normally look for. That's how it was written, and without words and without a title. We put the backtrack down the way you heard it. Then we worked on the lyrics and we worked on the additional, the overdub structures and things like that. Well, I've just wasted a sheet of uh, copying paper. <laughs> Sorry about that. I, I, I've got exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah. 
talking about that extended outro, that sort of developed from the little bit of instrumental from between the first chorus and second verse. Yes. And I remember when we spoke about Kilburn Towers and you gave it a 10 and I gave it a 9. And my one criticism was that the song just doesn't last long enough. And Spirits Having Flown amends that by having that coda outro. It keeps rolling and it has to fade out because it can't find any other way to to stop itself. It's just too good to cut off. Yeah, I've read that the song's outro was composed by Barry and Albie together. Mm-hmm. Albie Gloon goes on to say, I'm really happy with a lot of the orchestrations on Spirits Haven't Flown. We did the strings in Miami, so it was a fair amount of work because they're not like New York or LA string players, not the same kind of experience. But we had time, so we spent more time with them and got all the pieces really right. And then the horns and all the other parts put in worked so well together i'm very pleased with how it came out barry and i were kind of firing on all cylinders i would go to his house and we would play a cassette and we would sing the parts to each other and i'd write them down and then orchestrate them going back to that theme the confidence that he could hear something in his head he knew how he could get it into tape well barry must have really loved this one because if you look on the box of the mythology box set this was the first song he puts on his disc. Now, you've also mentioned, we go through the, the demos, and this is the only song that leads in with a one, two, three. I'm wondering if that was left off from the demo. And I think this is the track where we get Herbie Mann on the flute. And it goes back, this last track, to what we were saying at the beginning, where despite the, you know, the falsetto, there is, there is variety. Again, there's not too much difference from the demo to the final version. What we're hearing from Barry is him singing in a much higher register for the verse than what we get in the final version. He's not necessarily in falsetto here, it's just... High range. But but I couldn't really imagine even going back to take one. I doubt this sounded very much different. This goes into one of these songs that sort of wrote itself... It's only the backing that, as you say, with, with Albie that Barry worked on. With Spirits Having Flown, that brings us to the end of side one of the album and also brings us to the end of part one. So far, I think we've had one of the strongest, if not the strongest, single side or opening side to any Bee Gees album. Yeah, it's up there with my top three or four. Then first three singles, is there any three better? I don't think so. No, no. I, I know main course had three and to extent Mr Natural, uh, sort of a, a more... 
and commercial three. Yeah, with that one, I love the way that you have the the medley and the way that the songs weave into each other. Yeah. Segway from one to the other to the other. We don't have that here, but we have five very different but very classy songs. songs. Yeah. Yeah. Which just show the Bee Gees at the top of their game, that their zenith of what they could do. And you've listened to these five songs. Is the falsetto a problem? No. Probably more, do you think, the second side now? I think I think because if you listen to these five songs and put on another record, it's not an issue, is it? Listening to the whole ten tracks in a row might be, but I don't know. Yeah, because sometimes when I play the album, I do skip a couple of tracks on side two. I know that I shouldn't, but I reckon that does subconsciously come down to the falsetto, that I do get a little bit tired of it. But we'll discuss this in the next part when we go through side two. Excellent stuff. So on that note, we'll say goodbye and we'll speak to you shortly. Thank you for listening to Words, the Bee Gees podcast, presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepson. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Words Bee Gees Podcast and on Twitter at Words Bee Gees Pod. Or, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at wordsbeegeespodcast at gmail.com. Hello and welcome back to Words the Bee Gees podcast. I'm Cristiano and I'm joined by my dad Stuart. And I'm also joined by... No, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joined by the hip. (laughs) Well, I often say I'm Cristiano, I'm Stuart (laughs) and then... Thank you, Barry. Oh, yeah. That's it. So do it again, do it again.